0: Ghosts, zombies, strange creatures, we think they exist, we believe they exist, but sometimes it doesn't matter if they exist because we put them into our stories that we share with each other. Ghosts in popular culture and legend, that's our topic tonight with our guest, Dr. June Pulliam. It's going to be one heck of a night with a lot of strange and unusual stuff to talk about. Episode 469 of Spooky South Coast starts right now. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and Stephanie Burke. And now I'm going to pull down, I'm going to pot down the theme song, turn that off, put that back in program, take it off audition and turn it up. Boom. It's almost like I knew what I was doing. We are streaming live over YouTube. This is how we do the show now when the Red Sox are on the air. We begin it on YouTube and then move over to... The WBSM airwaves joining the show already in progress once the game is over. And we're also streaming on Facebook Live, but we're streaming audio only on Facebook Live because we're teasing you on Facebook Live. We want you to see it. We want you to know the show is on. We want you to know that we're discussing the paranormal, which is what we do each and every Saturday night. But we also want you to come and join us in the YouTube chat room and watch things in the chat room and listen to the show and experience the show in with the chat room going on because it adds an extra dimension.
1: It and, definitely does. And
0: Stephanie is back I'm after back. a um, two year absence? I, I feel something? like it has it's been, been two years.
1: years. It it has been a while. I don't even know how long. Maybe a month?
0: Uh was it like what was it like 6 weeks? We've, I do we've, we've had you in the, the, show? the days counting really? the days. Really? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, a couple of weeks were events, oh, but it wasn't. Right, right. Yeah, and, and there was weeks that we weren't on, I but I'm just, yeah. you know, it's been six weeks since the people have heard you.
1: That's really sad.
0: I heard a rumor that you were uh, opening up chicken farms in Africa. What? No. That's not true? Who no. started okay. that? I heard that rumor. All Did right. you? Well, I guess it's not true. No. But, and or if it was true, you're back anyway, so it doesn't matter.
1: I am. I have nothing to do with farm animals. I That's, promise. no? No. If I could <laughs> own a farm, I would, but no
0: well we'll we'll tell you the, the story about that later okay great we don't want to make it seem like it was and actually <laughs> way to start the show off on a good note Tim because here I am getting accused of Trump bashing every week now via what? email and now I just made a, a reference that people aren't going to get and they're going to be like he said built chicken farms in Africa that's racist
1: oh yeah it's yep. not you're going down the tubes
0: that's not what I meant and uh, I don't remember saying anything about Donald Trump but that those two emailers really think that I did.
1: I need to look for the second email because I need to know what happened.
0: Well, maybe I mean I'm not going to read them on the air because
1: it's some not of worth them, it.
0: Yeah, some of them were kind of uh, rambling and but incoherent and accusatory. But
1: being home and I open up my email, I start thinking, what in the world goes on while I'm away?
0: One of the emails actually Everything goes to hell.
1: It does. It does
0: one of the emails actually like said that I don't have any business talking about politics? Oh. Um well apparently you don't know that I work here at WBSM doing another show in addition to this show and guess what we talk about quite a bit on that program? Politics.
1: Not to mention the many degrees that you hold in like journalism and stuff, but just saying.
0: Yeah, but even that like I'm paid to come in here on Saturday mornings and talk about things like that.
1: Or to write about them for so newspapers. <laughs> if I
0: want to come in and m- <laughs> make a few mentions, you know, it's going to happen. And this show is just as much about uh the discussions that happen between us as it is about the topics that we have. So, you know, we never want to derail the subject matter and go off on a tangent, but sometimes people have opinions on things and they do come through.
1: But at the same time, we're also intelligent human beings that get to talk about, like, current events and things like that rather than just paranormal. But, sometimes the two of them are kinda in the same category.
0: By the way, oh, you know when I mentioned it? I know when it came up. You know? It just dawned on me now. It's when I told everybody to run out and get a copy of Donald Trump Ghost Hunter.
1: Yes. The book by Joey Hellenant. Is it?
0: Yes. That's when we were talking about, alright, I don't, I don't want to give away the secret here, but Donald Trump didn't actually write the book. It's Duh. a, it's a book that somebody made up as a joke. So the discussion that we were having was probably in relation to that. That just popped into my head. I remember mentioning it on the air a couple of weeks ago. But see, ago.
1: that's where current events. And paranormal combine.
0: But at the same time, I, I sound like I'm just butthurt now because somebody sent us a couple of emails yeah, complaining can about, it. can I say butthurt on YouTube? I think I can, I think right? Everybody can. else does. I think I, you can. I think people have said worse on YouTube. I've said a lot, worse, hey, listen. a lot worse. Yes. As long as I sing Chocolate Rain, everything's good. At right? least
1: you didn't get called ugly your <laughs> first week that's on a, radio. That's an old, <laughs> old, that's the oldest <laughs> well, like I, YouTube reference. That's
0: why, that's why I made it. I think they just celebrated like the 10th anniversary yeah. of that video this week. Or last week. That's why that's I mentioned. Really? That's why I brought it up. I thought it was yeah. older, maybe. I don't know.
1: That and Keyboard Cat.
0: Keyboard Cat will never die, though. Keyboard Cat exists Lives, in, lives in, long in our hearts. In infinitum. So we do talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night, and tonight we will be joined in just a bit by our guest tonight, Dr. June Pulliam. Uh, she is an LSU professor of English, and she has a new book out called Ghosts in Popular Culture and Legend, and we'll talk about that, but... Th- just her wealth of knowledge in the world of uh, paranormal stories and horror, and just looking at some of the uh books and articles and essays she's had published, this conversation is going to go all over the place we're going to talk about a bunch of different topics and really get into uh, some of the overall and overarching themes of these uh entities and these elementals uh, elements of the paranormal that we'll talk about elementals It's the same thing I know. But uh, we will – see, I don't I don't really care how good I sound on YouTube. You can tell. I'm mailing it in until we go on the radio. <laughs> it's not true.
1: Um, I would like to point out before we go any further that Ross left us a comment that says, let's make paranormal great again.
0: <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, listen, and Matt can probably pull this up on the screen if he wants to, but you got to go to Amazon, all right? You got to search for Donald Trump. Just put in like a Donald Trump search and like a bunch of stuff's gonna come up. The new book Trump Revealed will be the first thing to pop up. And that's where it, where it came up. We were talking about that book this morning on on my morning show. And a few spots down from that is the most outstanding pair of Donald Trump socks you will ever see in your life. Like I'm gonna Sox. order these. But I wanna find Donald Trump socks and Hillary Clinton socks and just uh-huh. wear one of each.
1: Okay. As a pair.
0: Um <laughs> <I like> <laughs> Gary Johnson, where are you gonna wear that?
1: <laughs> oh, oh, oh.
0: Uh, I am a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. Uh, but we will, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, what I wanna do is a <laughs> I wanna- do you have a Jill Stein in your undies? I, I, we're gonna get the Jill Stein thong.
1: Yeah.
0: She's, but if I- <laughs> I don't even wanna tell you what I'm getting for these Nuts.
1: This is what we can do on YouTube. We app. can.
0: Are you well you're voting for Harambi anyway, so Oh my god, by the way, I just want to point out the the music video drops Tuesday.
1: I saw that. Yep.
0: Uh, it's gonna be I, ridiculous. I'm so excited about this. Uh we we will share that when it happens. It's from our buddy Ross Patterson, uh, who has a, a new video coming out, a tribute song for Harambi, who's no longer with us, yet still leading Jill Stein in Texas. You know? I hate to goals. admit
1: it, but I had to Google the hashtag today because I'm a little out of the <laughs> loop and I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> we're
0: we're in the loop, but we don't fully understand. Okay,
1: it. cool. But that, uh, that's kind of the gist that I got from Google is nobody really knows.
0: It should be uh, it should it should be pretty pretty funny either way. Uh, so where was I going with that? I don't even remember. Oh, I was gonna say I was gonna wear one sock on one foot and one on the other, but I was gonna wear the Donald Trump one on my left foot. The Hillary Clinton on oh. my right one just to mess yeah. with people. Throw people off. That's yeah.
1: Exactly. I like yeah.
0: it. But I don't know <laughs> the Gary <Kerry> Johnson one. <laughs> anyway. Uh so uh we will be joined in a few minutes by our guest Dr. June Playman. And the show will suddenly become a lot classier, I promise. Uh but there is one thing that I want to mention before we do that, and that is this Wednesday night S- Stephanie's already Hi. Stephanie's already gonna start to shake and quiver when I start talking about this. I am. But this Wednesday night is the Ghost Hunters episode that was filmed at Fort Tabor, which should be your second appearance on national television. Yes. yes. Which will be seen by far more people than the first.
1: Which is terrifying.
0: Which is no offense to uh, Destination America. They are a fine network. and
1: Yes, they are. their
0: checks clear every single time they send me one. <laughs> but the, you know, that, that was, you it were was in a, a commercial, commercial. Yeah, yeah on, on the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. Uh, when it aired on Destination America. But now you will be on an episode of Ghost Hunters, provided
1: you you didn't didn't get cut, cut,
0: which can happen.
1: Um, it absolutely can happen. I know the producers were, um, really upset with me that I didn't tell them my story, like, the week before because they wanted to base the entire episode around my story. So, um, there's a good possibility that they kept it and made more of it. Um, she was actually talking about even making, like, reenactions of my story. Um, or there's a good chance that they cut it out because it didn't match everything else that everybody else said.
0: I know the episode description <clears throat> focuses on the fact that, uh, they think that recent historical reenactments at the fort has stirred up paranormal activity.
1: Well, my story definitely has something to do with um, that, so.
0: And also, never underestimate the power of editing, that if you did go in there and tell them your story, they were, still could have in, built the entire episode around that kind of on the fly, because right. the investigation happened after um, after your interview? No, before. Interview? Oh, the investigation yeah, they happened were before?
1: Done. Yep. They were done when they had me come in. So
0: then I'm going to ask you then, and mm. obviously we don't want to give anything away, mm. But when you're going in there, yes. you know, as a medium, do you feel like there was, uh, was it, was it active when you were there filming? Were you feeling that there was a lot? Oh, of it was stuff definitely
1: around? active. I um, actually filmed right in um, the middle of Fort Rodham, so um, which, if anybody is from the area, knows that it's locked a hundred percent of the time. Yes, yeah. um, I think it's like twice a year, maybe that they open the gates. To the public. Well, they're
0: starting to a little bit more. They? They're coming up with different ways to get people inside. So.
1: The The whole idea of me filming with them, because Ghost Hunters does not like psychics or mediums, Mm -hmm. was that I was a regular Joe Schmo um, and telling my story. Obviously, um, my story is based on me being able to see apparitions in front of my face. So, yes, I did see something, but um, they played it off as though... I, I don't have abilities. So. And
0: yeah, now all the accusations are going to start coming in the chat room and from people on Twitter using the hashtag spooky live where they're <laughs> going to say that you and on Facebook live. And, right. But people are going to say, oh, well, you know, that's disingenuous because they're, they're cutting that out. It's, it's kind of an omission of information.
1: Absolutely. Um, but I, I don't, just, I don't
0: feel like it's disingenuous. No. It's I, disingenuous to you because it doesn't give you the opportunity to let people know what you're all about. And now when, when people see you, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, you're a medium and you have this experience, according to Ghost Hunters.
1: Right. Like? Um, I mean, um, anybody could have the experience, I suppose. So that's how they wanted to play it off. But at the same time, um, if anybody doesn't know me, I don't push it out there either. Look what I can do. Um, So, but it was funny because I walked in there, I signed my paperwork and um, they had me go to the second floor of the fort and sit down. And when they were ready for me, every single time I tried to open my mouth, this gigantic flock of, I think they were pigeons, flew out of nowhere. But um, if anybody's ever been inside the fort, you'd know what I'm talking about. But if you have not, um, being inside there, you, you're you right on the ocean. And right. it's not just a beach. It's like the middle of the ocean. And it's very loud and there's wind blowing everywhere. Yeah, it's, a, it's you, on like a
0: point yes. that's surrounded by water all, all, all So
1: around. if you are inside the fort, even with the doors open, you cannot hear the wind blow. You can't hear anything. You can hear like the blood pumping inside of your ears, like, um, very, very silent And all these pigeons. I'd say there's probably like 10 or more of them flapping their wings and kind of being startled is extremely loud. So they flew out right in front of me, um, twice and The camera crew was kinda getting like a little weirded out by it, and I just looked at them, I said, does this happen, has this happened to you often? Has this happened to you all day? And they said, no. Apparently every time you open your mouth, this is what's happening. But it was only you. It was the only time that it was happening, and we kept hearing like weird noises and different things like that, so I had to keep repeating my story over and over and over again. So, by the end of it, I think I was laughing through it because I could not believe the weird stuff that was going on. I, I don't on. know if
0: you know this or not, but every time you talk on an episode of the show, a pigeon somewhere flies away. I knew it. It's got to it. be the frequency.
1: Um, but they were kind of, like, freaked out by it, so...
0: Well, at least it didn't turn into what happened the last time they were filming in New Bedford, mm. when somebody got hit in the face with sound equipment, so...
1: Right, right. could have been worse. Um, but, yeah, just just weird noises, sounds. um sounded like people like, were throwing rocks next to us. It was very, very strange. Um
0: and it was daytime. it
1: was in the middle of like the afternoon, I want to say it was probably like one or two in the afternoon. There was plenty of people outside they were enjoying because it's a it's a park, so people were enjoying themselves and talking and laughing and um so it was it was an interesting experience and
0: and you would ask me to go with you and and I had declined, but
1: yes, you did I remembered change.
0: after the fact that oh yeah, they have an ice cream stand there, so
1: right, and anyway, there's ice cream
0: usually so, you'll find me, and we mm, don't uh some mm- point or another.
1: we don't have to worry about the world knowing whether I'm a medium or not because I think. They might get their chance, maybe this fall.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, see? On your uh, third appearance on national television. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll leave it at that.
1: My really scary experience.
0: <laughs> well, uh, Matt's going to get our guest on the phone for us, Dr. June Pulliam. Uh, and during the course of the discussion, if you want to call in, you can do so at 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. Uh, and, of course... The best part about this is even though we're streaming over YouTube, we can still take your phone calls. Uh, we can still certainly be interactive with you and with the guests as well. Uh We will, of course, go live on WBSM as soon as the Red Sox game is over, as soon as the post-game show is over. Uh, we will definitely go live over the radio. So depending on all, how you like to experience the show, it's all up to you. But we love this YouTube option because we can see you in the chat room and we can interact with you in the chat room. Stephanie's going to be monitoring the chat room throughout the show and she'll jump in with any questions that are posted there or also on Twitter using the hashtag spooky live. That's always the way to get a hold of us or uh, you can just tweet us directly at spooky SC. Matt does a great job of putting right up there on the screen for us. Uh, you can see, all of our social media handles and you can see the tweets that pop up using the hashtag spooky live. So you can be a hundred percent interactive with us during the course of the show. And, uh, we are also very proud to be broadcast every week, uh, the rebroadcast of each episode on the dark matter radio network. So if you haven't checked that out, you can follow us there. I think we're on. I think we're on Tuesday nights right now. I'd have to look at the schedule. I know some things got shifted around recently. Uh, but uh, you get the chance to listen to the show on the rebroadcast on the Dark Matter Radio Network. And something that we've started doing over the last couple of months is, even though we post the entire show on YouTube following the broadcast, we'll put the YouTube video up and we'll share that around on social media so that if you miss the show and you want to watch it in its entirety, you can do so. Uh, Matt does a great job of taking little clips out of the show. And we have, you know, webcams and GoPros all over the place now. And he takes these little clips and he puts them up online and he just tries to grab like little moments of the show that can kind of continue the discussion on with you, the listener, later on in the week. So always pay attention to our Facebook page. Follow Spooky South Coast on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. And uh, pay attention to the Twitter feed and you will see that these little video clips get posted and we don't just throw the video clips up there and say hey watch this you know we're putting it up there for a reason because we want to keep the discussion going we want to get your opinion your thoughts uh we can put polls up there we can put uh we can put a um, you know surveys we can put just general questions to try to get you to interact or we can just you know make a a bold statement that you can either agree with or disagree with uh by putting your comments under there so there's no reason that the show only has to exist on Saturday nights for you. We can keep the spooky fun going all week long uh, through following us on social media. And I gotta say, I'm I'm very excited now. I, re- I recently got a very nice email from a listener, a regular listener, a weekly listener, who said, you know, we should be proud of the run of shows that we've been on over the last couple of weeks. And of course, I give all credit for that to Chris Balzano, our show's content director, who is the one who has been booking all the guests and pulling together some of these topics that we've been discussing. And I, I, for some reason, I'm just so much more excited for tonight's even than some of these discussions that we've been having. They've been great topics, absolutely great guests, but there's so many different directions that we can go tonight that my mind is all going 50 different directions in which way we want to start things off. But we will start things off by introducing our guest, Dr. June Pulliam, uh, a professor of English at LSU. At the t- uh, Well, here goes my bio page. I'm trying to read the bio. Uh, at the tender age of eight, June Pulliam was permitted to stay up by herself and watch George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. She was so traumatized by the experience that she now teaches courses on horror fiction at Louisiana State University. She's also the editor of Dead Reckonings, a review magazine for the horror field, and has offered three volumes of Hooked on Horror, as well as articles on George Romero's Land of the Dead, the Twilight Saga, Roll Doll, and gender and, like, like, why can't I ever say lycanthropy at first <laughs> glance? Why can I never spread it out? Uh, and she's put together a number of other books and articles, and she joins us on the line right now. Good evening, Doctor. How are you? Great. How are you doing this evening? We are spooktacular. Is, is, is it all right if we call you June? Oh, that's fine, yes. Okay. I, you know, usually I call the guests by their first names, but, you know, your first name is Doctor, so <laughs> I wanted to make sure it's alright to call you June. That's fine. And I gotta say that, uh, just looking over some of the topics that you've covered in books and in essays, some of your published works and the things that you teach of, you might just have the coolest job in America as far as I'm concerned. I'm pretty sure I do, yes, that's true. <laughs> And so if this is something that, uh, according to the bio here, grabbed you at the age of eight, something that has been uh, a part of your life since the age of eight, and you had a a traumatizing experience with it when you were younger, some people can go in different directions. Some people could be like my co-host Stephanie here and say, I don't ever want to watch another horror movie again. (laughs) But you've gone the other way, and you've embraced this and kind of made this your entire life. I really have. I've been extremely fortunate in that regard. And was there ever uh, a point where you said, maybe I shouldn't be focusing so much on this?
2: Well, at one point when I was writing my dissertation, I was um, looking around at um, maybe some other possibilities, and I started to focus a little bit more on young adult literature as a whole rather than just horror fiction, and I couldn't get away from it. Um, As somebody on my committee said, you know, the thing that I, I seem to care most passionately about, particularly was film. Um and you know, I am really, really very interested in horror film as a medium, um, even beyond horror literature as a whole. So I I just never could get away from
0: it. But I mean, for some people, uh, you know, it is about kind of the 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 thrill of it and it's about the feeling that you get of the adrenaline rush of of watching a horror movie or or reading a, a good uh, horror, piece of horror fiction, you know, you get kind of that adrenaline effect from it. And you've spent so much time researching this and and breaking it all down and going through themes and and uh, and going through archetypes and all of that. Do you still get that same rush from from the experience? I don't
2: think I get the same feeling that other people get. Um, I I don't get grossed out easily, um, and I think that's happening with a lot of audiences given the type of horror I'm seeing now. So you still have things that, you know, have a good degree of flatter, but I'm seeing a lot more subtle things now too where the most monstrous thing of all is something that cannot easily be seen, which really takes me back to the work I've done on the book um, that's coming out about the ghost as a horror archetype. So um, I just finished watching something today, Marble Horn- Hornets, always watching and you're probably not familiar with that um but it's part of the Slenderman mythology that's grown up over the past 10 years mm-hmm. and um the thing that's really really frightening about slender man is he's always kind of at the edge of your consciousness um or he's kind of on the edge of your vision and in this film i watched he, he's there he's on this found footage and he just whether you're watching or not He's watching you, he's showing up, and he's something that you can plausibly see if you just kind of look into the distance beyond the trees or in, um, you know, something on the side of the videotape. Other films have, of course, played with that idea too, but um, I think that's getting to be more frightening than any um, monster that can rip open any type of entrails in 3D CGI or what have you. We just we've been so saturated with gore, real gore, and um, from the news as well as
0: as created gore in films. But is there? I mean, we've seen this happen, though. We've seen like cycles of things, you know. And we recently talked uh, a few weeks ago with George Case about the the rise of the occult in pop culture in the 70s. So in the 70s, you have some of these uh, horror films that very much rely on the psychological. Then in the 80s, we had the big rash of slasher films, uh, and it seems like in the 90s things went in a variety of different directions. And then there's been more of those subtle, subtle horror films that have come about in the last 10 or 15 years. Is this something that's always just been?
2: well i think so yeah um because in part because audiences just change change their tastes and as audiences become more literate in the genre and um they're able to be more literate you're going to see more changing so one example i'm seeing is with several television shows that have come out in recent years and that would include netflix's stranger things which um just had phenomenal success um nbc's hannibal would be another one um but these things all depend upon their viewers knowing previous horror texts, films work, works of fiction hannibal in particular um but you know it's not something like these older series that would would go slowly and remind you what had happened if you didn't know it already uh, this depends upon the um, viewer knowing the films, the previous films that were made on Thomas Harris's novels, as well as the novels themselves, and it just it takes it into this kind of timeless universe um, that you know it's the beginnings of Hannibal, yet he's showing the beginnings of what he is to become in our century, not the twentieth century. It's kind of like that with um, George Romero's films too. He's developed this kind of timeless universe where this horror. This narrative is constantly unfolding. Or Bates Motel is another one. The, the past is taking place in our present. Um, it's Really strange.
0: I mean, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you on on this in terms of of your opinion, having studied this uh, a little bit more deeper. But it seems to me like horror has kind of accepted the fact that you know horror is being created by and for people who are already fans of the genre. It's not like they're out there trying to pull in, you know, vast new audiences. They're trying to appease the people who are already interested in it. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, things are being made less about, you know, movies are being made less about who you can draw into the theater on a Friday night and more about, like, what kind of lasting staying power you can have out there. Do you feel like that's kind of been part of the switch is that it's becoming becoming richer and deeper for the... Viewer because it's being custom-tailored for their experience.
2: Well, it is being custom-tailored for their experience, and it's being taken out of the theater, too. I do see some horror films in the theater. I find value in sitting with an audience and hearing what they laugh at or what just bores them, so they just get up and act out. Um, I, I like to hear their presumptions about what's going to happen and then when they're disappointed when it doesn't. But increasingly, because... Um, we, you know, you have different means of transmitting these films. Um, you have, you just have things more tailored to specific viewers. Like Netflix is an example. Um, Netflix has gone from being a provider of streaming media of other people that belongs to other people to making its own content, and that includes stuff that's tailored for audiences in a way that you just don't usually see on broadcast television. I've enjoyed a lot of Netflix dramas because they have so many women characters and characters of color. So, for example, you see a show like Orange is the New Black, and you're just not going to see that on broadcast TV for a number of reasons. But they're also doing that with their horror. They're tailoring things to this this specific audience. Um, You're also seeing um, a lot of things that are straight to Netflix, Mm -hmm. streams only on Netflix, and it's for a certain audience. I ran across a few really excellent horror films that, that streamed on Netflix, and I couldn't get them anywhere else. One of them is what I like to call this 3rd wave feminist slasher film called Almost Mercy that I just I love, and I made my students watch it last year. I don't think they liked it as much as I did, but um, anyway. You also have things being tailored to viewers where you can rent it pretty cheaply or even buy it on Amazon on demand or get it streaming through Stars, which is how I accessed um, Marble Hornets it's always watching. And then you have web series, series that are out there for free that that people pick up and they sometimes try to make these um, web series or um, little web films into feature films. So I'm thinking of this film I just saw recently, um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of it again, but it was based on um, that scary little two-minute film where this woman is trying to go to sleep alone in her house and she sees something in the hall and then it's gone, and she sees something in the hall again, and it's gone. And I remember, the movie's called Lights Out, and it's awful. It's really
0: awful. Where this all really, the, really, well, I was going to say, all the press tells us it's the best horror movie of all time. All the commercials tell well,
2: us that. <laughs> they've never seen a horror movie then. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. It was so bad that the kids were acting out in the theater, and one, one, one teenage boy ran down the aisle screaming out, me, it's too scary. It's too scary, and obviously it was staged. And my daughter was with me, and she got angry. But it was the most entertaining thing of the evening, honestly.
0: I mean, I, I suppose though it does, you know, you have to point out the fact that people can become desensitized to a lot of this over time, too. That the more of this that you absorb, and the more of it that you, uh as you were saying, you know, you don't get the same rush that you got, Uh and, and after a while, that will happen. You know, that will start to wane a little bit, but. It's almost like when it does wane, when the thrill of the chill is gone, that's when you can really kind of peel back the layers and give it a much better analysis.
2: Well, absolutely, yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't. Somebody stopped me one time when I was giving a paper about *Land of the Dead* and asked me if I was bothered by the gore, and I had to think for a minute because I didn't really see gore in that. I saw something else entirely. Um, yeah, you, you do get very desensitized very quickly. Um, it doesn't mean that you yourself are becoming a monster, but I I find that people who enjoy horror are people who, um, you know, they, they see in it um, a landscape through which they can um, play out their darkest fears um, and, you know, think about them in a way that they couldn't think about them otherwise. A kind of dream language.
0: I, it's weird, though, too, that the way that people can... Be willing to accept what they see and what they absorb kinda depends on the context of how it's being done. You know, I remember when The Sopranos was on TV, it was this hugely controversial thing because, you know, these guys would brutally kill people that they were supposedly friends with. And, you know, uh, they'll just throw one of their friends off the side of a boat in the first season. And, you know, this is so crazy and so controversial. And should the show be allowed on TV? And that's all kinds of problems. But now, you know, we have a show like The Walking Dead where we can watch zombies eating somebody, tearing their face off. And people are like, oh, that's great.
2: Oh, and the zombies are the least threatening thing on that. Yeah, that's at least as gory as something like Game of Thrones. I was actually laughing at some friends of mine today who are coming late to the Game of Thrones party and starting to watch it and commenting about, "Oh my, it has so much sex and violence in it." I'm thinking, "Wow, don't watch much TV, do you?" <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and and of course we've got people uh, already asking about uh, about The Walking Dead in the chat room, and we will certainly talk about that uh, coming up during the course of the discussion. But one of the things that I'm always is, is, you know as a fan of horror and as a fan of uh being scared i mean i it's funny to say because i don't actually get scared watching it but i you know just having that potential is i like those slow burn psychological dramas you know i like that i like a movie like the others more than i like uh you know paranormal activity i like it to be more subtle i like that because it seems more realistic And I I think realism is is a lot of what makes some of these movies scarier to people now these days, too.
2: Well, you know, I actually like both, and I see both as being realistic in different ways. I had a huge fight with my writing partner about the first paranormal activity. Um, He is more um, sensitive to sounds than I am, and he said, this is a stupid movie. It's just... making a bunch of scary sounds to try to freak out the audience. I didn't notice that. What scared me to death in that film was there's constantly this shot of the couple in the bed, and to their left is this big black hole that leads into their hallway. You can't see anything there. And the way that shot was constructed, it is so unsettling that's the part of the frame in the film that you're really not paying that much attention to. People tend to pay more attention to the right part of the frame, and so things usually jump out at you in the left part of the frame. And that whole movie made me so visually unsettled. It scared me as much as the others did, in a way.
0: And uh, is is there, though, is there any movie that you can say... Has changed the game at all? I mean, Paranormal Activity. People look at that and say, "Okay, here's a movie that's going to change things." And in the end, really, it didn't. Um, no, it didn't. The sequels are, tar- are just tedious. I can't stand them. It seems like there hasn't really been a you know you can look at The Exorcist for example as being a real you know cornerstone of a change in direction of horror. But I don't. And, and then of course you get into the Friday the Thirteenth and the Nightmare on Elm Streets and uh, and Halloween and those kind of Turn things a little bit. Have we seen any kind of uh, consciousness shift in horror and pop culture with with some of the stuff that's come out in recent years?
2: Yeah, I think we are seeing a lot more minimalist horror, as it always likes to call itself. And um, you know, we. What I was watching this evening I think was an example of minimalist horror too, where you don't necessarily have disgusting, gory things, but um just the dread of something coming to get you, something being there is enough to be frightening.
0: I mean there's there's a lot of value in that, I feel. And we should mention by the way that you're you're actually um you're not home tonight. <laughs>
2: No, oh, I'm not home tonight. I'm um, out at another location, and there are people walking by, and they're a little bit noisy. I'm
0: sorry. No, no problem. I just, I just wanted to clear up to everybody because the, the phone sounds a little bit choppy, and we've been hearing some background noise. So I want people to understand uh, noise. What's going a bunch on? Of
2: people coming in from the bars to the coffee shop, where frequent.
0: That's our prime audience, so we're cool with that. Oh,
2: fantastic! Well, good.
0: But, uh you know, I love when people say, you know, you see like a director talking about a new film and he says, you know, I want to be able to build up the scares and the tension without having to show the monster. And, and sometimes that can be very effective, but then other times it gets to the point where it also can turn into Cloverfield. Yeah, yeah. I actually liked Cloverfield. I didn't dislike it, but I was very disappointed when they finally, you know, showed what it was.
2: Yeah, but I like the way the tale unfolded, and I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of these, um, stories told diegetically, that is, as they're actually happening, and, um, you know, to me, that's interesting. Um, is, you know, we can't have any kind of coherent narrative anymore. It's sort of like the novel World War Z, if you've ever read that. Um, I actually teach that when I, um, teach the second part of the American Literature Survey. So I, um, I like that novel because it's not just about zombies, but it's about the impossibility of ever having a coherent narrative about what happened. You have so many different versions, and they can never be tied up into a neat little package. And you see that with these diegetic narratives, too. Something like Cloverfield, here's this kind of incoherent account of what happened in New York City the night that these monsters landed. Um, Cloverfield 10, um, 10 Cloverfield Lane is a little bit more coherent. Um, and I, I read that the monster, the Cloverfield monster, was kind of added on at the end when the um, production company acquired the rights to the script and needed to put it in its franchise somehow to market it. But you know that one's kind of minimalist too. I mean, it's you know really this this small little film that depends on John Goodman acting and the acting of the uh, the other two people on the screen.
0: That's and- it. We're obviously, you know, we'll, we'll be getting more in depth into some of the stuff coming up in the next hour. Uh, actually, I, I think that the Red Sox are still going on, so we won't actually have to stop for the news, which is good. Uh, but, I mean, when we normally do the show and we're broadcasting over the radio, uh, we have to be aware of like network news breaks and commercials and all that. But when, right now we're just going over YouTube because the Red Sox are playing on our station. Uh, so we have a little bit more freedom. Uh, but, and I'll, I'll give you the alert as to when not to, to, you know, drop any bad words. Oh, thank you. I hope I haven't yet, gosh. And, uh, you have to worry more about us than anything. But when we're looking at a lot of horror too in the last, you know, 15 to 20 years, uh, you know, M. Night Shyamalan has kind of embedded in people's minds the idea of the surprise twist ending and, and needing to have that in a lot of these horror movies. I was just watching Frailty earlier today and that was my first time ever seeing it. And, you know, that had a lot of those elements. You know, kind of the the psychological thriller. It's a horror movie, but it has, you know, it, it's believable. And it has to have that kind of surprise twist ending at the end. Is that something that we're starting to see, you know, wane a little bit? Are we seeing less of that overall?
2: I think we are. I think Shyamalan, um, well, he obviously wanted to be the next Hitchcock and have and twist endings. But people are getting kind of tired of that, too. Um It's... It that the twist ending itself has become predictable and so um, what you're seeing are cutting edge directors kind of moving over to the next thing which is this complete uncertainty I mean, the monster is fighting to us after all because it's a creature that crosses borders, it crosses categories um, we live our lives by um, all kinds of binaries that we depend upon being rock solid like the difference between male and female, the difference between human and animal Um, the difference between us and them, for example. Um, And or constantly challenges these binaries to show that they're really extremely permeable and they're not very solid.
0: You know, you can break down and analyze the... The, the people who make horror and the people who are successful at it. And you can try and get into the psyche of a, of a John Carpenter, of a Stephen King. You know, you can try and break that all down. But what I find even more fascinating are the people that can pull off successful horror comedy. And that's something that I think is, you know, in some ways you look at it as being a dichotomy. But- Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. There are some movies that pull off both uh, that are able to be equally frightening and and humorous. Do, what does that say about us as viewers that we will embrace something like that?
2: I think that's the only logical direction that some horrors can go is they they're just so over the top they can only be funny. Like for example, Shaun of the Dead and Zombie Land. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the zombie has become, you know, such a cultural stereotype. That um, you know, you can have movies like Shaun of the Dead that um, lampoon so many other different movies, and then Zombie Land, which also tries to lampoon a lot of different things.
0: Uh, being from Louisiana and and paying attention to you know this genre, have you seen Hell Baby?
2: I haven't seen Hell Baby yet. I want to see it. I that was advertised to me on Amazon, and I was about ready to pick it for a rental.
0: Oh, I highly recommend it. It is hilarious. It just, just for the shrimp po' boys alone, the, it's, it's just hilarious. Uh, I highly recommend it. I'm a huge fan of the state, so I love Thomas Lennon and Ben Grant and everything they do. Um, but, so it's, it's definitely, it has horror elements, but it is just so over the top ridiculous. I think you'll really enjoy it. Oh great. I'm going to have to watch that. So I, th- I do think though that people, who are into this, people like us and, and yourself, people who want to kind of see the commonalities and the themes that run through this. You know, we're always picking apart these movies and, and stories as we're reading them and enjoying them. Is there anything that you can kind of see of a common thread in the people who enjoy them? You know, is there anything about us as people that make us become geared toward these, or do they just appeal to a wide cross-section of the audience?
2: Well, that's a good question, and I'm not even sure what it is about this stuff that appeals to me. I mean, actually, I've been into horror much longer than when I was just eight years old. When I was really young and I wasn't able to write yet and barely able to read, I remember wanting to write a story about a ghost, and it was probably a pretty crappy story. I think I was about four, and I remember getting an older kid who was six to write down my story for me. Uh, and I don't know why this has always appealed to me. I, I don't know why I like the monster. the monster is in some for me and for other people in many ways a sympathetic character, even when it's not a sympathetic character. Um, you know some of us can identify with the monster a little bit more than others, for example, when King Kong was released, african American audiences kind of kind of cheered him on for um what he was doing to the whites for as long as he did it.
0: I'm just trying to think back to some of the Formative you know moments at least when I was a, a younger viewer, and I think part of the appeal of horror was that you know I wasn't supposed to be watching it. it being you know seven eight nine years old you're not supposed to be watching these kind of movies, and I think that that was part of the appeal of it I wonder if does does that stick with people to some degree that it's almost like uh it's it's taboo or it's it's alternative. It's kind of a little bit of an outsider thing that people still uh, can focus and, and delve into the world of horror?
2: Yeah, I think it's more of an outsider thing. Um, watching horror actually wasn't forbidden to me. I grew up outside of Chicago, and we had WGN before. It was a superstation, and like many of those stations, um, they had to fill their airtime with a lot. They didn't have network programming, so they would fill their airtime Friday nights, Saturday afternoons, Saturday nights, with um, Universal Studios, um, horror films, Hammer Studios, Godzilla films. And so I got to see all of that. And so my parents didn't think anything of it. When I was eight, they let me stay up and watch Night of the Living Dead, which that would have been 1970. Um, night of the Living Dead was made in 68. And um, so, this, you know, that means... it. You know why was the station showing something that was not only so scary that it was being banned in a lot of places, but um, should not have been out of copyright yet? Well, that's because um, somebody in the distribution company for the film messed up and didn't put the year on the original print of the Living Dead, and Romero lost all of the um, royalties for that film. So, flash forward two years later, and WGN is showing this, really scary film that I shouldn't be watching late at night. And my parents let me stay up. It was Friday. They didn't know what this was. But they weren't particularly fussy about me watching horror. And actually, I was one of the lucky kids who had... um a television set in her bedroom. And I got to watch these things. So.
0: Yeah, I did the same thing. And, and I remember actually my parents, you know, we would rent movies and, you know, it was the 80s when I was growing up. So you didn't own movies. You went out and you rented them from the grocery store, or the video store, or whatever. And I remember. Yeah, that was college for me. <laughs> I remember that my parents would, you know, multiple times they would go out and rent The Evil Dead. Like I, I, remember seeing it in the house a couple of times. I was like, well, what's this movie all about? That people are actually going out, that uh, my parents would actually go out and see this again. So, uh, what I did, did I turn off the commercials? Is that what I did? Okay. Matt's fixing the, the stuff. But, uh, the, the, where I lived, I could walk down the staircase from my bedroom upstairs and see the TV. And if I just stayed behind the wall a little bit that was on part of the staircase, my parents would never know that I was there. And so I would kind of just hang out there and watch movies like The Evil Dead, and and that's that's how I would check out some of these horror films. And then once my parents realized that you know I was watching this, and they were like, "Well, you know what? Watch whatever you want, but it's your problem if you can't sleep at night." <laughs> so that opened the door to walk. <laughs> you know, I was watching Poltergeist at like four and five years old, so I had no problems with it. I was just uh absorbing all of that.
1: I did the same thing. Top sites.
0: Stephanie, I turned your. Uh, uh, much you
1: did, I was gonna say I I did the same thing. I used to um go in the other room, and my my house is kind of like a, a roundabout. Like, you can just walk around um, the center staircase, and I used to peek through the doorway and um, watch my dad watch all kinds of scary movies. Um, scariest, I think, that's probably affected me to this day is probably Jaws. <laughs> fear of sharks is yeah, not out of a, control. A horror movie. <laughs> it's a horror movie to me. I can't even get near the ocean. Um, okay. Oh but um let's see what else. Uh Scream was one of them. Um, Exorcist was another that I remember. It was horrifying.
2: That's funny that you all got your um love of horror from your parents by watching things that were forbidden. I didn't have a similar narrative and but I had shown these films to my daughter ever since she was little, kinda age appropriate stuff. I let her watch Night of the Living Dead by herself when she was twelve. And she she goes to scary movies with me sometimes, but sometimes she doesn't want to go. She says it's
0: too scary, and she doesn't want to watch it, and she's going to get freaked out. So
1: that's me now. There you go. At almost thirty.
0: I, I got to say I just want to pop in here and I think we're live broadcasting on WBSM now so thank you everybody Fantastic. for joining us we are talking with our guest Dr. June Pulliam she's the author of the book Ghosts in Popular Culture and Legend as well as uh, numerous other works that we'll be discussing during the course of the show tonight uh, but I want to say hi to somebody who just popped into the chat room or at least I just noticed that they're in the chat room uh, our buddy Ray J who has been a long time listener of the show and I know is a huge fan of horror and a huge fan of film and breaks all this down so Ray J I'm glad you could join us live for the show tonight and be part of the discussion and if anybody else wants to be part of the discussion you can join in the chat room on our youtube channel just go to youtube.com and search, search for, for spooky south coast or go to spooky south coast.com you'll find the link there as well and you'll be able to connect with us there and watch and listen to the show and chat about the show as we go on you can also talk about it on social media on twitter using the hashtag spooky live and you can call in 508-996-0500 877-996-1420 If you have a question for June, and we, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to cover a lot of different topics here. But you you do focus quite a bit heavily on uh, on zombies with a lot of your research and a lot of your work. I do. So obviously, the big question is, you know, how has The Walking Dead both helped and changed the zombie genre? Oh,
2: that's a good question. So um, when The Walking Dead first aired, um, it, and when the comic book series first came out, it was obviously riffing on Romero's classic, but, it you know, I think it's really changed the genre in that Walking Dead sees, you know, what is the logical conclusion of this kind of world? Romero was kind of trying to do that in his lengthy um, Night of the Living Dead series, and I think he did it best in Land of the Dead, where we start seeing that zombies are capable of forming class consciousness, and they can work together for the common good, whereas the human communities always fail because they're unable to do this. So we're seeing this explored in depth in The Walking Dead. Rick's community is one of these communities that, even though they have their problems, ultimately all of these characters are able to put their um, own needs aside very often for the um, benefit of all. And problems happen when rich community comes up against other communities, um, like the one with the governor, where they don't necessarily do that, or you have a dictator ruling the community, or you have a hopelessly naive community, like the one that you have in. Um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name, but it was the one from last uh, <laughs> a couple Al- of seasons Alexandria. ago. Alexandria. Alexandria. Yeah, you have the naive rich people with their solar panels and their well-stocked pantries, and they didn't know how to fight.
0: Well, I mean, I remember watching the first season of the show, though, and, and, you know, zombies being whatever they are, you know, to people, and however, they've never really been scary to me, but uh, I found the storyline to be intriguing. But I kept saying, like, I, I need this show to get to the point where the zombies are no longer the antagonists, where the zombies ch- kind of just become part of the background. And I think that it's done that over the last couple of seasons, where the oh, zombies yeah. are—you know—they're just no different than, you know, you know, crows in a cornfield. They're just out there, and it's more exactly. about the, the the interpersonal relationships.
2: And I think one of the most um, disturbing episodes was an episode, I think, from season season six. It was called "The Grove," and um, I'm not trying to make spoilers for anybody, but um, um, what's happened is the group from the um, the group from the prison has been dispersed. And um, you have just um, oh, Carol and Tyrese, and they have a couple of children that they've taken with them when they ran, two um, girls who are sisters. And the oldest sister is very, very dangerously mentally ill. So what do you do in a world where you don't have psychiatrists, where you don't have mental health care? What do you have to do with this kid? I'm not gonna say what happened but it's it's pretty disturbing. Uh, another yeah. really
0: I think a lot of people know the uh the you know, look at the flowers yeah, reference by now. <laughs>
2: yeah, look at the flowers. Look at the flowers, yep. But, yeah. I mean to me and though you have another one where you have that um forensic psychiatrist who is teaching um the character from the first season who's just come back a different way of being with the zombies. You no longer kill anymore. You just redirect their energy. You only kill where necessary. Yeah, that's actually my favorite that, episode. Yeah, I think that's my favorite episode, too. And that just blew me away. Because being an American, I always had this idea that, oh, they're zombies. We kill them. You know, zombie narratives from other cultures have very different ideas about them. Um, there isn't this clear boundary between the living and the dead that we like to think that there is. You know, you have these people come back from the dead, um, in John Lundqvist's novel, um, I think it's called Burying the Dead, and um, what are you going to do? Well, it's Sweden, so you take care of them. You set up special housing projects for them. They have to be called the reliving. They can't be called zombies, and they have to be taken care of. Here, you know, we we shoot at them. We kill them. with. It. We terminate them with extreme prejudice until there's that one moment that undoes us, and we see that one zombie who... Has something familiar about it. Maybe this is a loved one who has now been reanimated. You're going to kill that one. Well, That's always the moment the done does, people, especially in American zombie narratives.
0: We, I mean, I, I can say that, you know. Tooting our own horn a little bit here, but Spooky South Coast, we were uh, one of the first radio shows to welcome on Isaac Marion when he wrote Warm Bodies. Oh yeah, and that was something that I thought did a good job of turning around the the zombie genre and giving us kind of the zombie perspective. And even the movie, I thought, you know, as much as it was like a you know like a Twilight type movie, you know, it was designed for the teen audience. I think more than anything, I think even the movie did a great job of turning that around and putting a fresh spin on the zombie story.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you're seeing zombie narratives now where zombies have consciousness.
0: Um,
2: like, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Raising Stoney Mayhill is a novel where you have, a zo- have zombies who have consciousness. It's about, um, it's based in Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead was a false documentary, bad propaganda to justify slaughtering all these zombies. Well, some of them still exist, and they're developing consciousness, and the main character, Stony Mayhill, by the end of the novel, he becomes kind of a Buddha figure who's able to transcend um, the flesh in order to have this, this new kind of consciousness and connection with all living things. So the um, zombie is becoming this post-human character, um, a creature who is superior to humans in its um, ability to connect with and interact with the world around it.
0: And and to take a quick step back to uh horror comedy it just popped into my head have you seen things we do in the shadows? Yes I have yeah. I thought that was pretty yeah. well done too. That was quite. <laughs> I mean wh- I mean whatever. I mean the flight of the concords guys no matter what they do I'm I'm good. Jemaine Clement makes me laugh just being <laughs> on TV, being on my screen. But uh get I mean getting back to the idea with the, with the walking dead especially. Like what I find interesting about that show and the way that they're portraying these human living characters is, you know, I'm not totally convinced that at the end of the series we're going to look at Rick and his community as the good guys of the show, as the heroes of the show. I think they're actually the bad guys. I think they're actually the ones who are going to end up being causing more harm than good in the end.
2: They certainly have done in the past, that's true, and characters that we have loved have been shown to us to be filled with flaws, especially, I think it's in season three where Rick just loses his mind after Lori dies, and he's got to step down as leader for a while. And they decide maybe they have to figure out a different way of leading the community. Is there? I and mean, the show's also gotten beyond the Carl is in the house, Carl is not in the house um, season. That was um, season two.
0: I was I was not a fan of the show for a long time. We actually have an episode of Spooky South Coast out there where I kind of railed against the show and being so popular, and I couldn't understand why people were... But the last couple of seasons have redeemed it in my eyes uh, yeah. to some degree. But I will say, if there's one lasting legacy of The Walking Dead that I will always be forever grateful to, it's those the meme that exists where Rick is telling Carl the joke, mm-hmm. and then he grabs oh, his yeah. arm and repeats the punchline. That is, to me, that's the ultimate <laughs> pop culture reference when you become a meme. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the one with the iPad. I love it. An iPad, Coral. Coral. Uh, So good. Uh, But, I mean, obviously I think that that show has also done quite a bit to open people's minds up to stranger ideas and stranger topics, even if it's not necessarily horror per se. Like, a show like Preacher would never have had an audience had The Walking Dead not preceded it, and I thought Preacher was fantastic. Yeah, that's something I need to catch up on, actually. Oh, I right. highly recommend it. It's it's just weird enough uh, that it will keep you definitely interested. And then to to go back, because I never read the comics, so to go back and then I watched Talking Preacher afterwards where they kind of broke it all down, all the stuff that happened in the first season never existed in the comics. They wrote this whole first season just to get them to the jumping-off point of the comics, which I thought was pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, that's very much like what happened in um, AMC's The Walking Dead is they kind of wrote a lot of stuff into the series that wasn't in the comics at all. And now what's happened is AMC's The Walking Dead has become the lead um, artifact in that whole franchise and not the comics on which it was based.
0: I mean, I suppose we want that. You know, we don't want direct adaptations. We want to be able to kind of use... Those storylines and, and those ideas and those characters to create new things, so that you know I I hate when people watch Game of Thrones because I don't watch it. I, I I was done with it after the first season, right. but I hate oh, when you. I love it. <laughs> but people get into these discussions, these arguments about you know what goes with the book and what doesn't, and how you know they want to read all the books before the next season starts. It's like what's the point? Why are you watching the show if you want to know what's going to happen? You know, my wife did that with uh, with True Blood, where she went yeah you know, she went out and read all the books. I'm like yeah, but kind of enjoy the show as it's happening then you can go back and read the books
2: exactly yeah and you know two it, it touches upon the concept of adaptation itself in that um, no adaptation can be fully faithful to the original there's just absolutely no way and I think that when directors have set to make adaptations of famous literary works, they kind of have that in mind That you know this can't be faithful um, and you know there's things we can do in the visual medium that we can't do in the solely literary medium. And you see that with the Universal Studios Monsters, with, the, um, with Todd Browning's Dracula, which really gave us this icon of Dracula that we have now that's very different from Stoker's original. You see it with um, James Whale's Frankenstein, which is very, very different from Mary, Mary Shelley's imagination of it.
0: Um, You didn't see it with Phantom of the Opera and the imagination of what the Phantom is like. So, I suppose, though, also that um, you know, people, there's probably some comfort in knowing what to expect when you're dealing with these type of topics. I mean, it's, it's kind of to say that I've already gone through it once. And, you know, I read the book and I know what happens and so now I can watch the show and, and, you know, it might be kind of a, a comforting factor to some people to some degree to be able to go on this thrill ride of experiencing these stories, but I love when it's, people will land-based a movie that might bastardize religion. For example, you know, the prophecy film, the first prophecy film I loved. I thought it was great, and people were like, "Yeah," but they basically just take a bunch of you know BS religious stuff and try to build this whole mythology around that. I don't care. I I think that that's better than trying to make it fit around what we actually uh, believe in.
2: Well, and you can look at the Hunger Games adaptations as well. And for me, I love the Hunger Games novels, but the first one, um, film in the series is really tedious because. The um, screenwriter and the director try to be entirely tooth spaces of the novel, and the film just gets weighted down.
0: See, I, I never read the book. I watched the first movie. Uh, again, I, I mean, I sound like I'm a pretty grumpy old bastard here, complaining about some of these things. <laughs> but I mean, some of it, I just I can understand why it's popular to people, but it just doesn't appeal to me. And I know that that will, you know, not not all of this stuff is universal. Um, oh, of course. But there is yeah. one, there is one topic that seems to be pretty well universal and out of all the things we're talking about tonight, it's probably the only thing we can discuss that Stephanie is not afraid of. And, and June, <laughs> you actually Thank you. were able to fight for and get the ability to teach a college course on Harry Potter. <gasps> oh
2: yeah! Oh, I didn't have to fight for that. That was like, yeah, go ahead and do it. It'll oh, really? Away. Oh, wow! Yeah, the students had a fight to get in it, and I want to teach that again sometime. But there's just so many things they want to teach. So how so I mean, many things? <laughs> what so was kind that of the course focus? Course
1: yeah, online. <laughs> <laughs> Can um, maybe
2: I'll up? write one online. I'm awfully late. I'm delivering an online adolescent um, literature course that I need to update. So I, I don't know. That, it that might happen one day. day. If somebody pays me enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Stephanie is a huge Harry Potter fan. I, I think am. that that is a very accessible kind of, you know, it's not horror, but it's its different. It's strange. It's, its we can call it paranormal for the sake of this argument. Where Almost it's paranormal, yes. And it opens up that door for people that might not normally have opened it.
2: Well, and Harry Potter um, as well is um, something that it appeals to both children and adults. And it's also, you know, the novels as a whole, they go from what I would call tween literature. So it's not quite adolescent literature, not quite children's literature. And as things get a little bit more serious, as stuff gets real, um, it becomes adolescent literature when real things are at stake suddenly. Much more real than what's represented in the first and second novel.
0: I'll I'll say this too for those who are not uh in the chat room right now on our YouTube channel, you're missing out because I'm just seeing all these messages fly by, and it looks like the topics there they're going all over the place too. So I'm I'm excited to go back and read those after the show. But Stephanie is also monitoring it, and she'll jump in with any questions I am. of anything that pops up. Uh, I mean we like I said, there's so many different things that we want to touch upon with you over the the time that we have remaining. Uh but you do also do a lot of analysis of the works of Roald Dahl and the to me I think it'll always be in my top maybe three movies of all time, the film version of Willy Wonka, which I know is very different than Charlie and the Chocolate which one? Factory, the original. Oh, okay. the, the, the original. The Johnny Depp one doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. Okay, that, okay. That, that never happened. Uh but the, you know, the the Gene Wilder portrayal of Willy Wonka in in that movie, I think that was a very subtle way of introducing horror themes to young kids.
1: Yeah, I think you're right.
0: It's a horror movie if you look at it, you know, it really is.
1: I just said that.
2: Well, really is frightening. I mean, look what happened to those other kids, the naughty, disobedient kids. And Dahl deals with that repeatedly in his work where um, bad people um, have terrible things happen to them. They're humorous, terrible things, but they're bad things.
0: But that's that's the that's kind of the key, though, is like it, it wasn't somebody that didn't deserve it.
2: No, they all deserve it. It's kind of like Hannibal Lecter's victims. They all deserve it for some reason, even if it's just like um, Benjamin Rapsale, the proudest... Um, for um, the symphony orchestra that is always off key, and it just enrages Hamill and he kills them. It doesn't Usually take... cause People have bad manners or
0: something. It doesn't take much to set people off. Uh, well, it actually doesn't, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> And I think part of the thing too with with at least Gene Wilder's perform—I know that there was a lot of—if um, I remember, you know, what I've what I've read and what I've heard, right? There was some controversy with him being cast as Willy Wonka because some people didn't know if he'd be able to play that darker side of the character. Um, but I always thought that he did a, a fantastic job of being creepy at the same time as being, you know, uh, humorous as well.
2: Well, yeah, he's just, you know, just this side of pedophile or something else right. because he's so, so insistently avuncular. And you just don't get that with the Johnny Depp thing. The problem with Johnny Depp and Tim Burton Tim Burton always takes Johnny Depp and makes him way too weird. I it's do.
0: Over th- the top weird. I do think, though, that kind of the, you know, the, the scene on, on the boat down the Chocolate River is what, you know,. Probably affected me the most as a kid. That is, and I can't be on a boat now and not sing it. (laughs) But at the same time, like, that was something that was, you know, one of the strong moments uh, that said to me as a kid, like, wait a minute, should I even really be watching this? Mm -hmm. Like, should they be showing us this in school? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh No, they showed it to you in school. They did. Yeah, the Uncle Lupus looked like a certain
2: presidential candidate that I won't name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Same color, same hair. Uh, exactly. Just take a just take a picture of him, Photoshop the hair green and there you go. Yes. But also every time I mention Donald Trump somebody now will write an email off to us that that happened. Uh, I didn't mean to get your emails, before. I'm sorry. No, 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 no problem. I welcome them. I love it. Uh I love when people kind of go after us for things, but one of the one of oh, the gosh. things that you have written about and and talked about extensively in the past is the idea of the final girl in horror films and kind of just walk people through what, what that is.
2: Okay, so the final girl emerged with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And this is Carol Clover's um, ideas that I'm riffing on here from her book, um, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And she's talking about gender in the horror film. So the final girl is the girl who lives through the maniac's laugh. She lives to the night. And according to Clover, the final girl is in a kind of gender distress in the way that the killer is in a sort of gender distress. And the killer has to kill to resolve his gender distress. You know, it's a man, usually, it's a man almost always, and his gender distress is because, you know, he he's just, he's impotent in some way. And so the final girl, she's always androgynous to kind of, um, you know, show that she's. In, not exactly in gender distress, but she's gender fluid. She's not neatly contained in one box or another. Um, And, you know, one thing I've been noticing, too, is uh, that the final girl has positive characteristics. This isn't all negative. Um, It's not like what um, they talk about in Scream, for instance, where um, the final girl um, lives only because she's a virgin. And so this is a ratification of patriarchal ideas about women's value and women's proper roles. It, it's much more than that. Um, what I'm noticing is the final girl looks at what is presented to her as adult female sexuality. And say a movie like, um, like Nightmare on Elm Street, the original one. So Nancy looks at what's presented to her by her friend as a representation of adult sexuality. That is, engaging in sexual intercourse, having a boyfriend, and her, her friend's in basically an abusive relationship. Um, there are a lot of hints in the film that, um, that Tina's friend Rod might be beating her up, he's insanely jealous, he, they break up all the time, and then they have makeup sex, it looks like a uh, cycle of domestic violence. Nancy looks at that. Nancy looks at her parents' failed marriage. She looks at the tired marriage of her boyfriend's um, parents, and she's just kind of waiting for something better to come along, I think. It's not so much that she survived because she's a virgin. She survives because she's not distracted by stupid things. And I'm noticing that there's something else emerging now in this um, century, something I'm calling the third wave feminist um, slasher film where you have even fewer demarcations between the killer and the hero. So something like Jennifer's body. You have um, the title character. She becomes possessed by a demon, but the ceremony um, in which she sacrificed goes wrong because she's not even, in her words, a backdoor virgin. So um, anyway, um, her best friend, Needy, goes off to avenge what happens to Jennifer after Jennifer has to be euthanized or in Almost Mercy. You have um, the, the title character avenging um, what's been done to her friend as a result of his being this strange kid and being tormented all, all his life. And he, he goes off to try to become a school shooter and fails at that, and he's dragged away to prison. So she um, gets guns and goes and kills everybody who's tormented him. And you cheer her on while she's killing these people. And she's she's kind of a final girl and a slasher at the same time.
0: And, and uh, Ray J just brought up a good point in the chat room, and uh, he wrote, you know, the writers of Friday the Thirteenth felt the final girl was the one who was able to m- look at the situation and was able to make a creative, informed reaction rather than a primitive reaction. And I think you see a lot of that. I wish my buddy Bill Gothier was in the uh, chat room tonight. Uh, he's written extensively online about Nightmare on Elm Street, and he would probably say the same thing as this too, where you know, as you were mentioning, where you're not distracted by these other things, and it's almost like these characters are rising above the typical teenager of that era. you know, they're, Well, they really are. Or of um, any era, really, the typical self-absorbed teenager.
2: Well, and also, if you look at something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example, and one reason Sally survives is because she resorts to typical feminine behavior. So she lives because instead of trying to stand up to the killer, which you can't do, he's got a chainsaw. She runs and hides when it's appropriate, and she has what's probably one of the longest screens in cinematic history. She runs from the house, tries to flag down a truck driver. He gets unlucky, and he gets killed um, by the maniac, and she runs back to the house and screams again until she can finally escape. So that's typical feminine behavior that usually gets you killed in most films, like earlier slasher films, um, earlier horror films, like the original Night of the Living Dead. One reason um, Barbara is just a liability is because she's so feminine. She falls in her high heels. She becomes catatonic immediately after seeing her brother killed in front of a tree. She's just no damn good. She's dead weight. Um, There's actually a really good remake of Night of the Living Dead by Tom Savini that kind of updates the character of Barbara as a final girl. And she looks at the situation and assesses it rationally in a way the men don't. I mean... You know, they're engaged in this battle for territory. Um, should we stay in the basement? Should we stay upstairs? Who should we let in? Who should we let out? She has a third idea. She literally thinks outside the box. And um, you know she learns how to shoot pretty quickly, how to become useful. And she's the only one who survives as a result.
0: Uh, by the way, whenever we mention Tom Savini on Spooky South Coast, we always must refer to him by his proper title, Sex Machine.
2: Sex Machine. Oh, hey, I think that's a pretty appropriate title. I've seen pictures of
0: him. <laughs> right, let me explain to Stephanie because she doesn't watch horror movies. He played a character called Sex Machine in a Tarantino film. I
2: figured so. okay. there was something Oh, to gosh, do. which
0: one? Uh, he was in From Dusk Till Dawn.
2: I haven't seen that one as much as other Tarantino
0: films. Oh, you have to see this one. I mean, this is right up your alley. It's a horror film. It is. And, uh, and, uh, he plays this character that helps him fight the zombies in the bar and, uh, he's there with, alongside Fred Williamson. So, you know, you have a couple 70s film stars there and, and he plays, and Savini plays a character called Sex Machine. So from now on, I always have to refer to him as such.
2: Oh, that's fantastic, yeah. Oh, he has. That's something I like about Tarantino. He's so aware of the genre. I mean, he makes films that look like they're the kind of films that I would have watched in the 1970s, the B and lower-grade movies that would come on and just be there. And, you know, they would be entertaining in some kind of strange way, but they very much
0: spoke to their era, too. And I, I have yet to see The Hateful Eight, so... That's I haven't a- seen The Hateful Eight, but... Um, I really like the Django Unchained, and um, you know, what was the one about the Nazis? Uh, that was. Um, am I blanking on the title? Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. Uh, yeah. Inglorious Bastards. It's one of the really like the, one. the tension in that movie, especially some of those scenes. Yeah. Oh man, so great! But apparently, yes. the Hateful Eight. Um, Matt, have you seen it? I know. Th- no. No. Apparently, I actually haven't seen the hateful eight. Apparently, from what I've heard, although it is portrayed as this, you know, kind of cowboy drama, it's actually a horror movie. That's that's what I remember hearing in some of the reviews about it. It's it's a sneaky horror movie is the way that it was described. So I'm gonna have to watch that. I just have not seen it yet. And uh yes, Chris <laughs> mentioned in the chat room, crotch gun. That's what uh, sex machine will forever be known as the best hidden gun in all the history of film. So uh, oh, that
2: would be I, amusing.
0: You will you will <laughs> yeah, definitely I'd like to see that. Definitely enjoy that. But uh, Chris brought up a question, too, that um, he wanted to, to have us discuss a little bit. And that was the idea of, you know, looking at the audience and looking at the way that they're taking away from these horror films. Are horror films more empowering for women? And and do they experience these films differently than men do?
2: I really think they do. Um, you know, I, I really think they cheer the women on when the women fight back. Um, and they're just tired of the same um, old patriarch garbage and they're not going to take it anymore. You know, I was posting something on my Facebook um, this morning about some um, woman who was once um, captured by ISIS and, and raped by their commander and then passed off to um, his subordinates as a sex slave and now she's fighting ISIS and she just shot him to death. And all my female friends, I could just hear the cheer going up, like, yeah.
0: She took care of them. I could. I mean, I can see how they can be empowering toward women, you know, uh, and how they would walk away from some of these films. I don't know if you saw Teeth, but you got to yes, feel. I love
2: Teeth. I'm teaching it this semester in my Gender and Horror Film. You're class. teaching you're, love
0: Teeth. You're actually teaching Teeth in class. Yes, and I just showed them The Woman. It was our first film, and I think I scared some of them. That that has to lead to this question. I have to ask this as a follow up, or I'm not doing my job right. Have you ever brought up Human Centipede in class? I haven't. I need to watch it. No no, you don't No? <laughs> if, if you watch it, I did not recommend that you watch it. This did not come from Why? me uh I haven't even watched it. I've just seen some clips and heard about it, and I've heard it's the most disgusting movie ever Matt actually well, then I have to watch it matt you've, you've seen it right yeah I've seen it yeah yeah you've, it's not um aren't
1: there like it's four not like of the best them
0: now? yeah it's I, I i would say it's more of a i guess slash or gross you out yeah movie idea. Than anything else.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'd like to see it try to gross me out. The only thing that would stop me from watching a film would be if I heard actual animals were hurt in it.
0: Uh, well, like Faces of Death, the scene with the monkey. Yes, yeah. I'm not watching that. I'm not. Nope. I, I don't know. Just the idea of what human or centipede is Holocaust. is pretty gross. Yeah. So
1: I refuse to watch it.
0: Uh, but, you know, just uh, getting back to the idea of of women in these films, what did you think about all this controversy then uh over the last couple of months with the release of the new Ghostbusters film with the all-female cast and people were against the movie and that turned into if you were against it, that meant you were sexist and, you know, what, what, what were you thinking as uh, all this controversy was swirling around the film?
2: I don't know. Donald Trump's um, the, one of the presidential candidates, that's all I can say.
0: Yeah. I yeah. I don't even understand
2: why there's a controversy. It's ridiculous. I, I, I I'm horrified that people have been harassing the film stars in the way they've been harassing them. I how, mean it's just so many we, women are harassed online anyway and um chased out of that virtual community for daring to speak up. Um it happens in the gaming community and you know, it's happening with things like this and I'm just
0: I'm I'm curious actually. But I've stayed, I mean, I was against the movie from the beginning, and I have, you know, always said that I'm against it because I didn't think that it needed to be remade. I didn't that's care that it was- That's point. point. That it did, yeah. doesn't matter that it was an all-female cast, and I think the reviews have kind of proven that, I, uh, you know, that approach was justified. Everybody says the movie's a pretty much a total crap fest. So- Yeah, and I've seen that with a lot of remakes, and that's a, that's a legitimate criticism, but I- I'm just-
2: I wanna stay bewildered, but I'm not um bewildered and all the fury directed
0: towards the female stars because they are female. Um wow. Was was there ever um, in your mind, and just getting to the idea of remakes? W- you know, we see a lot of remakes in horror more than anything. I think it becomes that thing that people just go to, and it's good when they can take a, take it and make a continuation. You know, like for example, yeah. I, I thought the Ash vs. Evil Dead series TV series was great, and you can yeah. kind of jump on that and carry it on. But have you ever seen a remake of a horror film that you thought was actually better than the original?
2: Um trying to think i mean i I am a big fan of the remake of 19th night of the living dead that savini did Mm -hmm. i don't think it's better than the original but i think it adds a lot to it um i liked other remakes in the past as well um i haven't seen the Ghostbusters one but yeah most of them are pretty pointless like the ones that rob zombie made like his remake of halloween it's almost Oh, it's almost shot by shot. Yeah. It's the same thing. And what was up with that remake of Psycho? I mean, that was really, not just shot by shot, a remake of um, what Hitchcock did, but, I mean, you know, things down to how the character Norman switches his butt back and forth when he goes up the stairs in the house, and you have a much, a Vince Vaughn, who is much larger than Anthony Perkins, who's nevertheless able to convincingly pull off that character. I forget who played um, played um, Marion. I think it's somebody who used to be married to Ellen DeGeneres. But the way she's filmed, yeah, 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 she looks exactly like the actress who played Marion in the original film. Um, I I don't know why that film was even made.
0: Well, I don't know what the point was. One vote from the chat room is for the uh, for the Evil Dead remake. They said that that was the Evil
2: Dead remake. I thought that added a lot to it.
0: And I think that, you know, well I mean if you look at it too, wasn't Evil Dead two just a remake of Evil Dead One too? Oh exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, I think that, you know, sometimes there can be ones that are are good and that bring more to the table, and some of them turn into, you know, just ridiculous. And we spent a lot of time here on Spooky South Coast talking about Amityville. And I I'd love to get oh. your opinion on Amityville, both the, the quote unquote true story and what it's turned into in pop culture.
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's always been a piece of folklore, really. It's a piece of folklore um, that somebody, you know, the, that was able to take and make into um, a story that was scary enough to convince people to, Jay Anson was able to, get the publisher was able to convince people to buy this book and then they made into it a scary movie and it became this gigantic franchise. Um, and I'm more interested in that, how um, stories like that develop and travel. Um, it's like a local couple of local stories we have here about hauntings in Louisiana. And one is about the Myrtles plantation in St Francisville. And I spent the night there. there.'s the bread and breakfast, and they they tell you um all of the s- stories about the plantation and what supposedly happened there. Um, the slave Chloe, she was once a favored slave, and she was afraid she was going to lose favor with her master, who was her lover. And so she was caught listening at the doors one day to, to see if her master was planning anything bad for her because he tired of her and when she was caught she was punished um, by, by her master ordering her ear cut off so she always wore a term to hide it and so in order to um, exact her revenge on the family when she was in the kitchen she was told to bake a birthday cake for one of the master's children and she put all leaves in it and she poisoned the entire family and so according to legend um, the slaves were so horrified by what she did and afraid of what might happen to them, too. They, they they murdered her and threw her body in the river, and she was never found. And so, of course, the Merles plantation is supposedly haunted by the ghost of old Chloe, who um, can be supposedly seen with the children she killed in this one photograph they display. Um, and, you know, there are other ghosts in there, too, like um, Ghosts of the Mistress, who can be seen in the mirror because it wasn't properly covered during um, the wake for um, her and her children, and so her spirit entered the mirror. All this is BS. This family, the, the um, Myrtle's Plantation was owned by the same family until sometime in the 80s, I think, when it was bought by um, another family from Texas who turned it into... Um, place where you can go spend the night and get a scary story, and they've got a really nice restaurant out there, and suddenly, this story that nobody can document is perpetuated. There's no, there's no historical evidence of the existence of a slave. Um, Chloe, um, the original owner of the plantation, um, Mr. Woodruff, was supposedly not one of those masters to visit the slaves' quarters and have his way with his female slaves. So all of this is just made up, but it's blossomed into this huge story. People go there and they claim they've seen things and they're terrified, and it's it's amazing. Well, then, and then you.
0: Have, I was going to say I read about Myrtles in a, in a great book called "Haunted Objects: Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf." But oh, cool! <laughs> I'm just I'm just, just, I'm just, I'm just throwing in a plug. There. I'm throwing in a plug for the book Chris and I wrote together. Uh, but the That's cool. the um, what I. But, you know, getting with the Myrtle story, one of the things that, you know, we always talk about here is that great line from uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, when legend becomes fact, print the legend. And I think that 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 becomes kind of the, especially with that case in particular.
2: Well, that's Amityville for sure. And, you know, that legend was also perpetuated by um, the Warrens. and Elizabeth Warren, the famous paranormal investigators who are becoming more famous now due to James Wan has actually made them into fictional characters that are showing up in a lot of films on
0: radio. Yep, yeah, they, uh, they certainly have made it into a, a cottage industry. But in terms yeah. of some of the, the more fictionalized stuff, I mean, Stephanie, there was a question in the chat room uh, that asked about that.
1: Yes, they would like to know how you feel about the old masters of horror, like um, our local star, Lovecraft.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm quite fond of him, Um, and I've taught some of his stuff in my classes, including um, Herbert West Reanimator, which is, uh, you know, it's not one of um, his finest tales, but uh, I like to use it as kind of a a blending of the Frankenstein story into the zombie narrative, and yeah. (laughs) And, you know, he's just got a completely different mythos going that you don't see with other um, writers this idea of cosmic dread that there's just something down there that the gods hate us they don't really like us very much it's kind of like Ridley Scott's follow up to Alien
0: I do think that there's some touches though of all of these you know all of these authors Lovecraft, Poe they all kind of embed something into the bra- the brains of all those who come later on. Um and, and I think, I mean, I, I, there's no secret to anybody who uh, listens to this show, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Uh, Chris yeah. is a huge Stephen King fan. And to me, he's kind of, you know, just as I think Stranger Things is kind of a, an homage to all of the influences that, you know, led to the creation of that, I think that Stephen King is the collection of all the influences that uh, he read and that inspired him. And so I, I feel like he's kind of the the person, the, you can look at him as the, the cultural touchstone to make horror become something even more than it was before.
2: Well, I read somewhere, too, that he's kind of actually the father of the horror genre. And that when his publishing house saw how popular Carrie had become, suddenly they had a breakout imprint for horror. And before that, horror fiction was kind of lumped in with other fantastic fiction, with fantasy, sometimes even science fiction. Um, But King made this breakout where horror was a genre of itself. And still, you know, horror is kind of a bastard genre. It doesn't get a lot of respect. The only genre I can think of that gets less respect of horror is porn. I have friends who work in porn studies.
0: Um, uh, but, uh, thank you for putting the word studies at the end of that. I was wondering where we were about to go with that. No, really? Real, no,
2: they work in porn studies. That's the thing. We don't have it but, here, but uh, they, No,
0: I believe it. I just was, I yeah. thought you were just gonna leave it at you have friends that work at porn. I was gonna be like, well, I don't know how to follow that up with another question. <laughs> well, I might have friends who do that too. I don't know. They haven't told me about it. But no, they write about porn. I did that so. once for 50 bucks an article. It was, uh, it was actually one of my favorite jobs I ever had. Writing about porn. I reviewed porn DVDs uh, very early oh. on in the existence of the internet. Yes, excellent. It was yeah. Well, uh, and that's why later. the internet exists, right? The only problem is I couldn't really write full reviews because I only watched it a few minutes at a time. So that was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I had to go. That I had to. T- I had to go there with that joke. <laughs> We, well, did, we, did we did we did have we did have the uh you know the Jennifer's body reference earlier in the show which might yeah. might have been the first such reference on Spooky South Coast in 10 years but uh one of the one of my favorite things about uh horror movies and about the fact that uh when these characters take on a meaning you know these characters pop off the screen for a lot of people especially the villains uh, the antagonists in these films they become something more and we've seen that happen with so many of these, you know, horror movie villains, or in some cases, you could almost call them the heroes of the film. But you know, when when Freddy Krueger becomes more than just a, a movie character and becomes something kids are actually having nightmares about when they go to sleep. I mean, this oh, it, it can he's supersede. cuddling now. Oh, I had I a student in
2: class about ten years ago told me when he was little, which was probably like five minutes ago. I don't know. He had a Freddy Krueger nightlight. Or a Freddy Krueger lamp, or something that was by the side of his bed, and it always comforted
0: him. Hey, to, to each their own, but uh, <laughs> uh, but these characters, like they can have a life of their own that exists, kind of. So you can create a mythology with a character that's totally fictional that becomes the real, true thing of nightmares. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I mean you can't do that with I mean how many people are sitting at home saying, Oh gee, I really fell in love with, you know, Woody Allen after seeing his character in whatever movie. You know, that doesn't happen. It's, it doesn't have the same effect that horror seems to. It's a much more guttural, uh much more basic reaction to what you're seeing. Yeah, exactly.
2: Is there and, any- you know, you either love the character or you hate the character or
0: i don't know listen i hate to 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 go down what i think is a cheesy question route but i think we can kind of go with it a little bit in the terms of this discussion i hate like listening to sports radio and they're like well who would you put on your mount rushmore of football (laughs) but i'm going to ask you who would you put on the mount rushmore of horror films if you had to pick four some people look at the universal monsters some people look at the 80s and 70s slasher flicks who would be your your mount rushmore of horror and it could be oh, that's, fictional that's characters, it could question. be authors, it could be whoever you would want to put on there.
2: It might have to be directors. And, you know, oh gosh, this is a hard question. Of course, you know, Romero and Carpenter. And this is just a really heavily male, unfortunately, and Western list. But um, Romero, Carpenter, maybe, maybe Lucky McKee. And I'm trying to think about somebody else. And, jeez, I'm blanking on this. But, you know, films, I would say you absolutely have to see. Night of the Living Dead, of course, because that's just so influential. Um, Several of the early Universal Studios um, horror films, because they were, you know, they were really the founding texts of monsters now. So I would include James Whales' Frankenstein, Todd Browning's Dracula. Um, I would include White Zombie, which isn't very well known, but that's like the first zombie film ever. Um, I'd include the nineteen forty four Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and I think the nineteen forty four Wolfman. Um, there's the mummy. So you've got all of those and Hammer Studios plays with them later on. But those are the founding ones.
0: I think you gotta put then, Browning's freaks in there too though, because that kind of made horror yeah, I love normal. Freaks, yeah. You know, that I kind of made freaks. it like you could actually I hate it when I show that film. Oh of course, yeah. But you could look at that as being in the movie where you say, <laughs> Wait a minute, maybe we can be scared of things that actually are real.
2: Well, the things we ought to be scared of, according to that movie, are possibly the things in the mirror. Hm. Or, uh, I mean. Those are the real monsters and freaks, they're the normal people.
0: Yeah, you're, you're afraid of, uh, you're afraid of what it, what it is that resides inside of us. Uh, and exactly. what can come to the surface. Same with The Walking Dead, I mean, that's what you're really afraid of. You're afraid of what people will do when their backs are against the wall. Yeah,
2: it's much easier to kill the zombies than some of those humans. It's just, and, yeah, that's what you really have to be afraid of.
0: See, this is the stuff that I... I love breaking all this down because I I will watch a horror movie and, you know, I will probably... More, more thought-provoking things will happen to me after watching that than watching, like, a good documentary. And oh,
2: absolutely.
0: Me too. There's just not enough people to... Discuss this with. So, you know, I'm I'm going to friend request you on Facebook and harass you all the time when I'm watching horror. Oh,
2: that's music. awesome! Yeah, because I I really torment my friends after I've seen something I'm really excited about and I drive them crazy. So, I'm in my favorite coffee shop right now, and one of my students in my horror and gender class works here, and I just bended her bent her ear about um, that Marvel Hornets mm-hmm. movie I've just seen. Would be really good to use in your thesis. You know, you really need to watch this. <laughs>
0: I must have talked to her for five minutes while the customers were backing up. (laughs) There does seem to be, though, um, I don't want to say an undercurrent because I think it's kind of becoming more of a a mainstream thing, but there are a lot of people out there now, both writers and and directors, uh, people who want to try to take horror into a different direction, and they want to try and take it into a direction where... You know, it's not about whatever special effects you can put in or whatever kind of jump scares you can come up with. People really want to play with your mind and, and mess with your mind when scaring you these days.
2: They do. They do. And I think that's what Memo horror does as well. Um, in another film of a couple of years I really like Unfriended. Unfriended is interesting because it, it follows a lot of the um, classic ideas of Greek drama. Everything takes place in one setting, and on one day. And the setting is um, the computer screen of one character. So, you know, it was ahead of its time in that way. There's not much of a plot to it. It's just typical slasher film, but the way that film is told is just so groundbreaking.
0: See, I saw it on my On Demand, and I I thought about watching it, and I was like, eh, I don't know, but if if you recommend it, then I'll have to check it out.
2: I think it's worth watching. I really do. Um, And I put it up there with something like It Follows,
0: well, there is, uh, there is also a new horror, and we were talking about how horror can kind of work its way into TV now, and even network television has embraced it. Um, of course, you know, successful shows like American Horror Story, that's gonna make the network say, well, what can we do to get onto this bandwagon, but, uh, this, this oh, fall- falls- I love American Horror Story, it's the best thing ever, and I'm just gonna forget about that bad season American Horror Story freak show. See, I watched Sorry. that one, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't think it was all that great. I didn't watch the Coven one. And I didn't watch god, the hotel. Hotel is my
2: favorite, although I really like Hotel too, And I actually like the first one, Murder House, an awful lot. And um the second one is interesting as well with the uh, Asylum. Mm-hmm. I really love the actors that um they're using in that series. They're just, oh god, they're so talented. Especially Dennis O'Hare who this past season played a transgendered character and he just, he just breaks your heart.
0: Well, I think that that is kind of that success has led to other networks picking up on it, and and this fall, Fox is going to have a series based on The Exorcist, which yeah, uh, we'll watch that. It's it's going to yeah. start our our local girl, our hometown girl, uh, Gina Davis as uh, oh. as the mom, and but that's one of those stories where I mean, you look at that, I you know, the idea of taking The Exorcist and putting it on TV. People will look at that and hate it before they've even seen it, and they'll say, why would you mess with what might be, you know, the greatest horror movie of all time? Why would you decide to, to mess with that? We saw what happened with the two, uh, Exorcist prequels that came out oh, that essentially yeah, competed probably, with each other. One was bad, yeah. I thought one was good. But, I mean... Um, the, the Exorcist
2: was one of those forbidden films when I was a kid. It's not that my parents would forbid me to see it, but my best friend, her parents were very religious. And she wasn't allowed to go see it because the rumor going around then was if you saw it, you'd get possessed by the devil or something like that. Did you? And she,
0: well, I don't know. Everybody probably thought it was already possessed by the devil. So, a <laughs> question. But. Well, but it was also one of those things too where, that, I mean, that's, we've talked about this in the past. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago with George Case. That's the best word of mouth you can get for a movie like that.
2: Yeah. I know, right?
0: They're not going to do anything to stop it.
2: Somewhere. Yeah. The worst. And I think that really helps something like I Spit on Your Grave achieve its cult status, which I love that film, and I love showing that in class. I love watching the reactions of my students um, in that penultimate scene where she takes her final revenge. And, you know, when you have that 20-minute rape scene, that's the most disturbing rape scene I've ever seen. Um, when I teach it in the gender and horror film class, usually I'll have more women than men, like a lot more women than men. And the men start nervously laughing and then look around and realize, oh crap, I'm in a room full of women. I better not laugh. Well, when she takes her revenge in that final scene, the girls cheer and laugh and clap and the men, the men turn white and cringe.
0: See, I, I think that, you know, part of that is that, you know, you look at a, a class that focuses on gender studies, I think you're gonna have, uh, the idea of going in, you know, gender studies and horror movies. I think a lot of people probably go into that thinking that the the role of the woman is diminished in horror. You know, she's always the screaming victim, the scream queen. But I, I mean, I can never get over the idea. You know, even going back to you know Jamie Lee Curtis and and some of the films she was in D D Wallace, and you know, these are women who, when I was a kid, I saw them as very strong female characters in movies. I didn't see Very them. Much so, yeah. They weren't uh, shrinking violets in the face of this this challenge.
2: No, they're not. Um, but the difference between um, Jamie Lee Curtis and Camille Keaton in her film is um, I Spit on Your Grave was actually banned. Not not because of the nudity, not because of the graphic 20-minute rape scene, but because of the graphic nature of her revenge. Hmm. Which I think is really interesting. You know, nothing else is going to be banned in the United States due to its
0: violence. How does the remake of that compare?
2: I think the remake's pretty good, but the thing that amazes me about it is, wow, that sister can really rig up some elaborate equipment for revenge just on the fly.
0: And I suppose I wouldn't be, uh, you know, I'd be remiss uh, if in the final moments of the program here, I didn't talk with you, kind of taking this out of the idea of, of fictional horror and kind of brought it into the... I guess, the quasi-real world of reality television and what we've seen with the rise of the paranormal shows uh, over the oh, last yeah. 10 years and, and what that means both for the topic and the genre overall and what that means for the role of women in particular.
2: Well, that's particularly related to ghosts, too, by the way. Because most of those paranormal shows are about detecting ghosts either um, debunking them or um, saying, oh, they're real, they're real, there's a ghost everywhere, like the ghost hunters. I mean, there's our a, there's a South Park parody of that, where they see a ghost everywhere and they pee themselves because of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the ghost, when I started the book about the ghost, I, I sat down with some um, colleagues of mine, and one of them was a professor of folklore, and he said the ghost is the only monster that people believe are real. They believe it's real. They might not admit that to everybody, but they believe the ghosts are real. So I think that's why you're seeing all these paranormal um, shows, both to debunk things and, and, you know, things like John Edward crossing over where, um, you know, people like the idea of these mediums and um, their ability to put them in touch with their dead relatives. You know, people like Teresa Caputo on Long Island Media, who just basically harasses people on the streets. and, says, Hey, you, I talked to your dad. grandma. she got a message for you.
0: I mean, I i also, I know that we were having you on talk about the book, Ghosts in Popular Culture and Legend, and we've kind of talked about everything else included, too, but... ah, oh, that's fine. Uh, I mean... F- I also think that a lot of, you know, working in the paranormal community, and that's who, you know, a a bulk of our audience is, you know, they will complain about the way that women are kind of just used as ghost bait on some of these investigation shows, and that they aren't really given a, a pro you know, they're subservient to the men in a lot of these programs.
2: They are, and that's interesting, because um, if you know anything about American spiritualism, which was a very, very um, big religion in the 19th century in the United States, and it, it went to other countries, women were kind of at the center of that. American spiritualism um, allowed women to um, speak in public in a way that they weren't normally allowed to speak, and they were able to speak as spirit mediums. And so when they were possessed by the spirit, they could speak All kinds of truths, because they were possessed, maybe truths about women's condition, um, truths about um, the morality of slavery, that they couldn't stand up and say otherwise, and it gave women a position of power, and spiritualism kind of fell into disrepute. Um, because you had a lot of charlatans who were claiming to be mediums and charging a lot of money and putting on performances, saying, oh, I'm going to put you in touch with your dead relatives. And um, people like Harry Houdini on this continent um, really just put the nail in the coffin of spiritualism with debunking these mediums over and over again and proving that their abilities were spurious. But women have always been seen as the appropriate vehicle of spirits because, to put it bluntly, women have more holes in their body than men. And also, um, mediumship and possession kind of mimics pregnancy. So you see women being possessed way more often than you do men.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um, and- so,
2: yeah, I think it's interesting that in a lot of these shows, it's men, especially men with their scientific apparatuses that are debunking things or serving as mediums themselves and kind of silencing women. And when women are presented, um, like Teresa Caputo, um, it's kind of, you know, I mean, it's like, I don't know, like, it's like some of these other shows I've grudgingly seen, like Real Housewives of whatever place you want to name.
0: Well, we we only have about uh, two minutes left in the show. Let everybody know where they can get ghosts in popular popular culture and legend, as well as some of your other works. Well, you can get them all on Amazon. I'll tell you that right now. That's
2: where I get everything.
0: Always the best place ghosts, to go.
2: Yeah, Ghosts in, uh, in Popular Culture and Legend should be available um, by the end of the year. It's, we had a few production delays, but um, yeah, go out and buy it. You, tell your library to go out and buy it for you so you can go look at it. It's a good reference book. Um I wish it was twice the size it was because the ghost is such... A huge figure and I felt that myself and my co-author weren't really able to do the genre the justice it deserves because we had to try to select representative um, representative examples of this trope and it's just wow there's so many things to choose from
0: and so uh, where can people follow you if they want to follow along with uh, all of your work and research online um, they can probably follow
2: me on Facebook actually all right. I've been looking for me i random. friend them all right. Well, uh make I sure I you- have a website, but I, I haven't had a website for a while, and I think I told you in email about the only thing um, I've got right now is a foster dog. We needs a home. So,
0: well, we can maybe help you with that too. So, we'll be glad to help spread the word. Well, <laughs> fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. June Pulliam, for joining us tonight. We look forward to talking to you more down the line in the future.
2: I'd be happy to talk with you more in the future.
0: And next time, we won't bother you when you're trying to, you know, do something else on a Saturday night.
2: No, no, I usually go here. If I stay home, you'd hear dogs barking in the background.
0: All right, well, you know, that comes, sometimes adds to the, uh, air. you know, they could be the Hound of the Baskervilles. We don't know.
2: Well, it might be. My foster dog fights with my dog, so it's, it's really noisy. They're small, yappy dogs.
0: All right, well, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you. Take care. And okay. uh, that is, again, Dr. June Pulliam. That does it for tonight's show. Uh, we will be back next week. Next week is at 9 o'clock. Red Sox game, I believe. So we'll be broadcasting completely over YouTube, but we'll come here and we'll do it. We'll broadcast over YouTube, so you're gonna to want to tune into the show that way. Even if you're listening on WBSM, you know, you can keep your game on your radio, keep the Red Sox on your radio, and watch Spooky South Coast on your computer by going to spooky southcoast.com or YouTube dot com slash user slash spooky south coast. Uh, and of course every episode is put up online as well make sure you watch out for those clips on social media during the course of the week and get involved with the discussion with us as well and i think we're trying to get jim harold on next week but we'll have some more information on that later on until then for matt for matt for chris for stephanie we want you all to stay spectacular.